The book of Titus. It is known as one of the pastoral epistles along with uh, Timothy and Titus. They were both considered sons in the faith of the Apostle Paul. Titus was a complete Gentile where Timothy was half Gentile, half Jewish. And with uh, Timothy's ministry, uh, Paul did work with him with the Jews. And so therefore, he actually had Timothy circumcised right before they started uh, the ministry together in the book of Acts, where Titus was never compelled to be circumcised, and uh, he had a complete Gentile uh, ministry. And um, <clears throat> interesting enough, we know that he was with Paul in his missionary journeys, but the book of Acts doesn't mention him by name. We don't know why that is. But it happens in the book of Galatians. He does mention that Titus was with Paul in that Acts 15 meeting with the leaders over the fact that uh, the Gentiles were not to be circumcised. And he was there with Paul at that time, Galatians chapter 2 um, tells us. And... Um, Paul did see Titus, like Timothy, as a fellow partner. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 8.23, he says, If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. And if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches and uh, the glory of Christ. And so uh, Titus, uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians alone, was mentioned nine times. And so he very much was instrumental with Paul in his ministry. The Corinthian church was very near and dear to him as well. And uh, he had a great gift in encouraging the brethren. And uh, remember he was in Macedonia. We read about Second Corinthians 8 and shared about the great need uh, with the poor saints in Jerusalem. And they gave a, a great uh, amount of money for them anyway. They were very poor. And uh, he completed that grace of giving in them, and now he had come to Corinth. And, and he said, I hope that uh, that same work of grace that Titus was able to put into the people in Macedonia would be placed in you as well. And, uh, and there Titus was sent to encourage the saints to give as well as to take an offering and was one of the guys to take that financial offering to the poor people that were uh, in great need, the Christians there in Jerusalem. Uh, at the time. And so at some point, Paul and Titus, along with others, had gone into uh, the area of Crete, the island of Crete there. The island of Crete is um, there in the Mesopotamian Sea, and it's southeast of Greece, it's southwest of Asia Minor, and it's north of Africa. It's about 160 miles long, and uh, the width can vary anywhere from 7 miles to 35 miles uh, in its width. Uh, you can look in your Bible map and you'll see where it's at. It was very strategically located uh, for the Greeks and then later for the Romans. And so every type of uh, immoral customs that these cultures had, especially with the sailors coming through there, uh, it had become a very perverted place. And... Uh, it was in great need of a, a move of God. 
Now, we estimate that actually uh, Christians were from there at the day of Pentecost because it tells us in Acts 2, verse 11, that when they heard them speaking in tongues, some of the Jews, the Hellenistic Jews that spoke only Greek, were there in uh, Jerusalem at that time. And they heard Peter's preaching, and we assume that some of them got saved and possibly went back there. And uh, when Paul went there and ministered, um, he ended up leaving Titus there to pastor that place, like he left Timothy in Ephesus. And then uh, Paul was arrested, and while he was in prison, in that first imprisonment, um, Titus was pastoring there at Crete. And he was having a hard time like Timothy because these guys had always been evangelists. They were always traveling around. They hadn't really been a part of the startup of a church and to see how it ran. And uh, so both of these guys were sort of uh, scattered in what to do on how to the day-to-day operations of building a church. And, of course, that was to our advantage. The Holy Spirit orchestrated that. So Paul would write these wonderful letters uh, to Timothy and Titus. And they're very similar in some ways, telling these young men how to pastor a church and how to start a church and how to build a church. However, we do discover that later on that um, Titus did join Paul in Rome because he does mention in 2 Timothy 4.10 that uh, Titus was later then uh, sent for Dalmatia, which uh, you guys remember 101 Dalmatian? No, (laughs) Dalmatia. Uh, It's actually an area in Croatia today And uh, actually, this last summer I was there, went down to Split um, and visited there. And that's the area of Dalmatia where Paul had gone and ministered at one point, and then uh, Titus pastored in that area. Well, let's look there in Titus chapter 1, as Paul's writing this letter to this young pastor. He first starts out the letter as they do, naming the person writing it. We often have the person's name at the end, and we often have to look to the end of the letter and say, who's writing this thing? But right up front, Paul. Now, that really wasn't his name. His name was changed to that. It's a Gentile name, which means little. His original name was Saul. Remember who Saul was, the big, tall, kingly guy, because he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so, instead of having the kingly name Saul, he was given the name Paul, which means little. And he was a bondservant of God. The term bondservant, as we study the Old Testament, was when a person was willing to continue on their slavery. In the Old Testament, when somebody became incorrigible, they would take them and they would make them a slave of one of the elders in the community. And if he, had, if he had a family, the whole family would go. And it was a six-year discipleship program. This guy had the power over his life. And the idea was to teach him how to be a productive person. So if you had a guy that was becoming a drunk and wasn't planting his field and wasn't taking care of his family, and it was going on and on, what do you do? Well, the way the community was set up, they would take the guy and they'd force him into slavery uh, for six years. And 
there he would teach him how to be a man, how to be disciplined, how to be a hard worker, how to be a husband if he was married, how to be a father if he had kids. And so at the end of that time, often the people just loved this guy that sort of adopted him as a, his, uh, as a son, and they didn't want to leave. And if he didn't want to leave, when his six years was up, he would go to the front porch of the house, and he would hold on to the doorpost of the house, and he would have to say, as the elders would show up and make sure that this whole thing was legalized, and he would say, I love my master, I will not go. And there they would put his ear against the doorpost, they would get an owl, they would punch a hole through his ear, and they would give him an earring. And uh, then it would be known in the community that he is a person who chose to be a slave. In other words, he's saying, I like who I am when I'm having to be submitted to this person. And I am afraid that if I'm not submitted to this person, I may go back to the horrible person I once was. Therefore, I choose to have this person to continue to control my life, that I walk in a greater quality and a greater character. And Paul takes that whole concept and says, that's who I was before Christ became the master, the Lord of my life. And so now I love my master, I will not go. And therefore he is a bondservant of Christ. And what a beautiful term for all of us, willingly giving ourselves as slaves of servants of God. And he said, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The term apostle, again, and is a transliteration of the a Greek word, and it means a sent one, one who is sent out to go to preach the gospel. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, Barnabas and Paul were pastoring the church in Antioch, and as they were seeking the Lord along with some prophets and leaders and teachers, the Lord spoke and said, Send out Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have sent them to do. And the Lord sent them out. And therefore they're apostles. Now the original twelve apostles are the ones that the Lord picked and he sent them out in twos to go preach the gospel. And then the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel and, and so forth. So they were all the twelve apostles and they're never really replaced. But that term apostle is used for many different people in the New Testament. It's not solely for the twelve apostles. And so in reality... We would say, uh, like Greg Opine used to be our youth pastor, was sent to Hungary, and, and uh, John Wang was sent to go to uh, Brazil, and, and um, Bill Osborne, who's here with us visiting, he was sent out to Hungary. They, they, you could say, in a sense, they're apostles going to preach the gospel, the people who have never heard the gospel. They're sent ones. But uh, we wouldn't use that term because of... Uh, other quantifying factors. There are groups who claim to have a continuation of the apostleship and it can get a rather weird and they think they can add new revelation to the Bible since they're an apostle and so we shy away from using that term in that way. But it literally means a sent when I was sent out by Jesus, Yahshua, Christ the Messiah according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which Accords with godliness. Paul says in 2 Timothy that everything he did, he did for the elect's sake. So 
those who would believe. In Acts 14 it says, And many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. There's some people that just will not believe. And the bottom line is they're not elected. They haven't been chosen by God before the foundations of the world. If you're here tonight and you say, I don't like that. Because that doesn't sound fair. Well, then choose Christ. I don't want to choose Christ. It's because you're not elected. But I want to choose Christ. Then you're elected. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, I preach the gospel to all men. And if I knew who the elect were because they had a yellow stripe up their back, I would walk through England lifting up coattails and then preach the gospel. But since uh, there is no such stripe down a man's back, we preach the gospel as if all could be saved. But those who do believe, they acknowledge the truth. There are people that uh, will not acknowledge sound doctrine. And they don't have the truth. And when you have the truth, it leads to, notice here, a godliness, a godly life. Right doctrine leads to right living. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. And those who are elect have the right doctrine. They receive the truth. And with that truth, it leads to a godly life. And that godly life gives you a hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So it says in Romans chapter 8, that to those whom he has foreknown, he's also predestined. To whom he's predestined, he has justified. To them, those he has justified, to them he's also glorified. And so those who have come into Christ, he's already let the cat out of the bag. He's already seen you, as it says in Ephesians 2, seated together with him in heavenly places. And there who God cannot lie, he didn't uh, dangle heaven out in front of us like a carrot saying, then I'm not going to give it to you. He's given it to you. It's our hope. It's our confidence. The word hope in the Greek doesn't have like we have hope. Oh, I hope so. No, it's a hope, a certainty. It's my confidence that I have, that I am indeed going to share heaven with God forever and ever. In First Peter chapter 1, he says in verse 4 and 5, he says, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The Lord has given us heaven. He's keeping it by His mighty power. And He's keeping it for us. And it's going to be revealed in the last time, either at the rapture of the church or when you die to go to see the Lord. And I love that passage in John 3.16. That God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would what? Not perish, but have everlasting life. That's our hope. That we would not perish, but we would have everlasting life. God cannot lie. Those who are acknowledging the truth, that truth leads to a godliness, they have the hope of that eternal life. And God is not going to tell us that if it wasn't absolutely true. That he has promised us that those who are predestined, those who are the elect, before time ever began. And in verse 3, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching. So at a point in time, your salvation became realized. Now, God knows the end from the beginning, but we don't. 
So at some point in time, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. And so at some point, when somebody began to share the gospel with you, at that point, it became known that you indeed were the elect of God, that you were predestined before the foundations of the world, because at that time, you received the Word, and you received it as the truth, and you received it as the Word of God. And that's the, God's desire, is that we would have the joy of going into all the world and preach the gospel. The Bible says in Romans 10, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who spread the good news. But how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless somebody tells them? And so, I mean, God could stick his face out of the clouds and say, listen up, everybody. He's not going to do that. God is going to use you. And so as he told Esther, how do you know? It's not for this very reason that God has lifted you up for this very purpose. How do you know God didn't have you live in the very place you're living because of that guy next door? How do you know that God hasn't given you that person that you're working with next to you for this very reason? But what does he say? And if you will not, he says to Esther, God will find somebody else. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, And there's some amongst you who have not the knowledge of Christ, and I speak this to your shame. Awake unto righteousness. Wake up and, and share the Lord. The Bible says those who wish to live God in his life will be persecuted. You will be rejected far more than you will be heard and, and the gospel received. And uh, Paul says, I show in my body the scars that I've been obedient to Christ. And uh, a lot of us have emotional scars from trying to share the truth with people. But how many times I've had somebody come up and give me their testimony, and the guy that worked next to him, they just persecuted that guy for five years straight. And then after uh, the guy had left town or he had moved away, then he gets saved. He goes, oh man, I tormented that guy. And he was right the whole time, you know. And everything he told me, uh, it went right to my heart. They say that uh, if you take a rock and throw into a pack of dogs, you know which dog got hit, right? The one that screeches. <laughs> the one that makes the loudest noise. Often you know who is appointed to eternal life, how hard Satan's fighting to keep a hold of them. And, uh, and how loud they're, they're screaming uh, as they come often into the kingdom. And so, don't be dismayed at their faces. Share the gospel. You know, you gotta, you got to throw the, the, the hook and the worm and the bulber. you got to throw it out there, you know. And uh, you're not going to get a bite if you don't try to go fishing. And so, go be fishers of men. Give it a little bait. Throw the hook out there. You know, you, they may take your worm and run. Uh, but one of these times, you're going to catch something. And uh, to be honest with you, I... I can't think of a more joyful experience on planet earth than seeing somebody come to Christ and then grow in Christ and then see them 10 years later um, walking in the Lord. There's just nothing more joyful to know that God used you to take them out of darkness into light, to take them out of the kingdom of Satan into the son of his love. And there they're going to be in heaven one day.
And uh, the Bible says that those who share the Lord are wise, it says in Proverbs. And in Daniel it says they shall shine like the stars in the sky forever and ever. There's a special reward. There's a special blessing for all of eternity to those who have led others to Christ. And I want to give you the statistics of how sad it is, how many people have not even tried to share their faith. They've done polls, and almost every single time, it's about 90% of Christians, actually in the 90s, have never tried to share their faith. And it's less than 1% of Christians that have ever said, I've actually led somebody to Christ. And uh, how are they going to believe unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless you tell them? Aren't you glad that somebody stepped out of their comfort zone and they shared with you? And so step out of your comfort zone. Hand somebody a track. Share the Lord with somebody. You'll be absolutely blessed when you finally get a bite and you reel them in. Get the big one. They didn't get away. Got them right here. It's a joyful thing to see them come into Christ. And so it comes by the preaching, by the declaring of the gospel of Christ that the truth of their calling, of being elected, is manifested. And this was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So Paul says, that's what I'm about. Sharing the truth. He was an evangelist. He was an apostle to go and to tell people who had never heard of the gospel before about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was his calling. This is what was committed unto him. And to every single one of us is committed a ministry. And one of those ministries is to preach the gospel in season and out of season, to share with everyone we see. And um, then also beyond that, to have a ministry uh, within the church. And uh, Romans 12, um, as well as 1 Corinthians 12, says to every one of us, we have a part in the ministry of Christ. Every one of us are called to be ministers. So that's why Titus is such an important book. It's to us ministers, and every one of us are. Now he writes to Titus. So he gave the declaration of an apostle, and now he's going to talk to Pastor Titus here, a true son in our common faith. Paul had men that he thought were sons, but uh, not all of them were true sons. As a matter of fact, in that same verse in 2 Timothy, he, he also says that Demas has left, left me, having forsaken me, because he loved this present world. But Titus was a true son in the faith. He wasn't going anywhere. He was going to continue to faithfully serve the Lord. And he says there, the true son in our common faith. In other words, the same true doctrine of Jesus Christ. And grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's interesting, in all of Paul's letters, he always says to the churches, grace and peace be unto you. But in each of the pastoral epistles, he adds the word mercy. Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace speaking of God's enablement. God's empowered. So whatever we need, it's going to be through God's ability to us. God's strengthening us to do that work, whatever it is. If we need forgiveness, it's God's grace that gives us forgiveness. If we need power to preach the gospel, it's God who's going to give us that power to preach the gospel. And you'll never really come to the peace of God until you can trust in the grace of God. Whenever we are 
lacking, we just come and say, God, I need more of your grace. I'm really angry at that person right now. I need your grace. Fill me up with your love. I know I don't have the ability to get over my anger. I need your love. Whatever it may be, God, I really uh, blew it and I, and I sinned. I need your mercy, Lord. I need your forgiveness. Whatever it is, we learn to just lean on the grace of God, to trust in his empowering enablement. And thus, then we have peace. Because I know God, who started this whole thing, God's going to finish it. He who began that good work in me, he's going to complete that good work. And I have a faith in that grace of God. But often, to those who are in leadership and those who have been Christians for years, somehow we think that all our time in the Lord, and although we've grown in the Lord, is going to keep us from being weak. And so often we can just beat ourselves up endlessly for not yet attaining to where we think we ought to have attained to. I've been a Christian 10 years. I've been a Christian 50 years. I've been pastoring for 20 years. And I should be beyond where I am now. And the reality is, is we never get past living the simple Christian life. When we got saved, our spirit, the Bible tells us all the old things passed away, all things became new. But our body didn't get saved. <laughs> this old wretched man, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. That battle, that fight is always going on. Paul said, there's no good thing that dwells in me. Hold on, hold on. that's not completely true. That is in my flesh. For in my spirit, in my mind, the willingness is there, but I find another principle happening in my body. I remember years ago, I asked Gail Irwin, I, I said, uh, so as, you know, what point in Christianity did you just start, you know, walking over all of sin and just soaring as a Christian? He goes, well, let me ask you, Brian, when do you struggle the most with sin? When you're tired and you're wore out and you feel achy. He goes, the older you get, the more you feel that way. <laughs> it's like, oh, great, you know. It's a continual uphill battle to keep beating our body into subjection. And so if you think, wow, I know the Bible so well, I don't need to get up and get on my knees and seek the Lord and read the Bible, that is going to be your pitfall. He who thinks he stands, be careful, lest what? He falls. And it's only as we hide God's word in our heart that we won't sin against him. And so as one week in the Lord or 50 years in the Lord, today we need to grab the manna. Today we need to hear the voice of God. And my 50 years of being a Christian is not going to help me for today. Today, I need to have the power of God's Spirit in my life today. Today, I need to get filled up with fellowship with Him today. And it won't bleed into tomorrow, and I can't take it with me from the past. Today is today that I need God's fresh word, fresh strengthening, fresh empowering. And today, if I deny myself and take up the cross, today, if I meditate in His word day and night, 
then I will be successful. I'll walk in the Spirit and I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But if I have, you know, 12 months or 50 years behind me of walking as a strong Christian, there's no guarantee that that's going to continue if I don't continue walking daily with the Lord. And uh, that can often get people tripped up. But at the same time, we can often, as leaders, get hard, get down on ourselves because we can always be better than we are. We can always have reached out to one more person. We could have always preached one more message. We could have always prayed a little bit more. And the reality is, is we come to that place that we can do only the best that we can do today. Here I am today with the grace that God's enabled me to walk obediently and to pray as much as I can today. I am what I am, Paul said, by the grace of God. I labor more than all, Paul said, by the grace of God. And so we can often beat ourselves up. We can often, you know, if somebody falls away from the Lord, we can get down on ourselves. Man, I was thinking about them. I should have called them. I should have wrote them a letter. I should have asked how they were doing. And we have to just come back and say, you know what? As a leader, you're not going to have the peace of God until you yourselves can receive the grace of God and His mercy. And have, say, as the Lord's merciful with me, I need to be that merciful to myself. And to say, Lord, help me to receive forgiveness. Because often it's like, well, you know, before I was a pastor, you know, I could be forgiven like that. But now that I'm a pastor, I shouldn't be able to receive forgiveness like that because I'm a notch above everybody else. And that's just never true. We're all just dumb little sheep. And uh, it doesn't really get much better than that. And we have to continue in the grace of God. We have to continue in the mercy of God to have the peace that comes from our intimate relationship with God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says here in verse 5, For this reason I have left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So I left you there, to set things in order. So it sounds like Paul might have got a message where Titus is saying, you know, I'm not called to be a pastor. I'm called to be a whatever it is, and I really want to get out of here. Uh, things aren't going well. It would be much better in the hands of somebody else, and I have this problem and that problem. And, and Paul comes back and says, Titus, I know things are out of order there. That's why I sent you there. Now, what are you supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be pointing elders like I commanded you. So often, pastors and leaders try to do it all. They try to do all the work of the ministry. And they wear themselves down and the people aren't growing. Why? Because in Ephesians chapter 4, it says plainly that God has given to the church pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists for what purpose? For them to equip the saints 
for them to do the work of the ministry. And that's why they're there, to teach the Word of God, to build everybody up so they can do their part within the ministry. Let's turn over there to Ephesians 4 quickly, right to the left, just a couple of pages to the left, not too far. He says there in verse 12, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ... In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together. Now listen, what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by what which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So that's where it's supposed to be coming, to the place where the whole body is strengthened, where the whole body is ministers, where the whole body is has a part of that ministry and then causing the growth of the whole body together by everybody functioning in that role in which God has given them to do. They came to John the Baptist and they said, are you Elijah? He said, nope. Are you the prophet? Nope. Are you the Christ? And he says, I am not the Christ. <laughs> That's a heavy thing to try to be. But often, people in leadership, they try to be the Christ. And they will find themselves, um, you know, ready to walk off the pier with a big weight around their necks in a hurry. Because it can get very depressing when you are trying to save people, when you are trying to build people up, when you are trying to do the work of the ministry and the efforts of your own flesh. God gives you grace to do what you're supposed to be doing. And when the grace runs out, then the ministry stops. And often I have to pull leaders aside and I say, okay, you can lead worship, you could teach Sunday school, you could usher, you can evangelize, you can or organize mission trip. There's really no part of the ministry you can't do. So just because you can do them all doesn't mean you're supposed to do them all. What is your piece of the pie? What has God called you to do? And that is what you need to do. Now, if somebody is apt to teach, then great. Teach a home fellowship. Teach a Sunday school class. If God's giving you the gift of administrations, you might be able to administrate more than one thing. But there comes a point where it's not right, because really you're getting in the way of somebody else who would do that work of the ministry. Now, are they going to do it as well as you? No, they're not. They don't have the years of experience that you have. But the reality is, is once they start, they're going to grow. But until they start, they're not going to be growing. And so we need to get out of the way and let the body of Christ be the body of Christ. And so he's saying, Titus, reading between the lines, you're burned out and bummed out because you got there trying to fix everything. You got there trying to 
elder and deacon and counsel and evangelize and organize and, and do it all. And now you're throwing your hands up saying, this is impossible. Let's just forget this place. And he said, I sent you there. And what was lacking is still lacking. And that is setting the leadership in place. You need to appoint elders in every city as I command you. So it sounds like the island of Crete had more than one church that actually Titus went there uh, and got stuck in the problem areas. And then the other churches on the island were uh, not getting the attention that was needed. And when in reality, he said, go there and help get these guys pastors and then disciple the pastors and, and build them up. Timothy was having the same exact problem. And uh, finally, in the second letter to Timothy, he said, no, let me explain it to you again. You get men and you pour into them. You share with them the things that I shared with you. And as you build them up, then put them in that place that they can now share it with other men as well. And uh, it's, it's not a complicated thing. But we have to appoint those people. And, and really, it's not us appointing them. It's God that appoints them. The Bible makes it clear uh, within the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul writing there says to the leaders that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So as a leader, it's really not saying, okay, I'll make you a pastor. It's God has done it. His hand is upon that person. God has raised that, raised that person up to be an elder, to be a teacher of the word. And as leaders, we simply identify what God has done. And uh, it's a very sad day when people are told, here's the system, you know, go get your college degree and get your doctorate of divinity, and then we'll lay hands on you and make you a, a minister. And that's why denominations are dying today. What did Jesus do? He went and found a bunch of fishermen, spent three years teaching them, pouring into them. And now he said, go into the world and make disciples, learners, pour into them, share with them the very things I shared with you. And uh, it doesn't have to be somebody with a college degree. It doesn't have to be somebody with a doctorate of divinity. And uh, often when guys go to cemeteries, I mean seminaries, excuse me. <laughs> a little slip. They, they often, I was going to say, they often die spiritually there. So man, it worked out quite well. And uh, I've seen many guys on fire for the Lord, and the time they get their doctorates of divinity, uh, they were no longer on fire for the Lord. They went and hurt, hurt a bunch of dead words by dead men, and they finally got their degree in deadness. And uh, now they're supposed to have life in themselves and go preach the gospel with life, and it doesn't work. They go to live churches, and they bring them down to their level of deadness. And, uh, and so we need to follow the Lord's example. People that are pressing in on the Lord, uh, whether they're a fisherman or a tax collector or a carpenter, whatever they might be, that as they study the Word of God, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that the Word of God is there to prepare a man 
to be prepared for every good work. It's through the knowledge of the word. And uh, I'll tell you what, I have gone to college, I've studied with these guys, and they do not know the Bible. In many of my classes, I would point out from the scriptures where these guys were contradicting the scripture, and when I would share a scripture with them on more than one occasion, they would say, oh, you show me that verse. And I'd show them the verse, they're going, oh, okay. They don't know the Bible. They've, they've got their doctorate and they've studied everything in the world but the Bible. And uh, when all they needed was to be a man of one book and study the scriptures. And so grab these guys that are um, have that hand of God upon them, that God is raising them up, and pour your life into them. Begin teaching them and building them up and unifying them uh, in, in true doctrine, and then eventually turning over to them aspects of the ministry. Every Monday night, I get together with a, a portion of our leadership, and we do that very thing. We uh, share the Word of God with one another. We uh, read books together, and uh, it's that very thing, discussing the ministry, building them up in the ministry. I also have a pastor's college here. That very thing, taking men and uh, taking them through different aspects of the ministry and the Word of God to help them grow, that they indeed could be pastors and, and leaders in the church. And this is a part of the job of a pastor, to help these guys to grow up, to be elders in the church, and not to try to do it all yourself. And in verse 6, if a man is blameless, now this is the qualities of an elder, a teaching elder in the church, he's to be blameless. Now, often when you read commentaries on this, they define this word to be basically perfect. Uh, this is no joke. I, I actually heard uh, a tape series. A guy handed it to me one time. It was four tapes. It was like the 86 qualities of a blameless pastor. And it was four hours. And I, I mean, uh, the time he got to the 86, you know, it was, you know, uh, <laughs> I won't tell you what I was going to think, or what I was going to say. I'll, I'll, I'll be blameless and not share with you. Um, <laughs> but it was basically perfection. And, uh, and, and with that, a, a, again, it would basically, nobody would qualify. Here he's, he's saying that you have a reputation that your character would not put people in doubt. I, I like Daniel, for example. You see his purpose and commitment of heart. And if somebody came in and said, hey, you know, Daniel just ran off with somebody's wife, nobody would have believed it. They would have laughed in their face. Because Daniel was a blameless man. And uh, that purpose of heart that we see. And so in the same way, they're to have a, a life inside the church and outside the church that would not be the a kind of person that would be dishonest or with guile, but a person with no guile. And then it says, the husband of one wife. Now some try to, again, add to that and say, uh, matter of fact, uh, in one good, solid Christian group, they actually had in their records that if a guy uh, was married and his wife died uh, and then he remarried, he could no longer be a pastor, which is ridiculous. Um, but here it's talking literally having more than one wife. 
I was uh, watching a special on the History Channel, and uh, Joseph Smith had 47 wives. I guess that's why he had to be a prophet, because he couldn't qualify to uh, be an elder. <laughs> but it also, I, 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 it dawned on me, it dawned on me why so many people in America, their last name is Smith. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Joseph Smith was his name. There are parts of the world today, Utah being one of them, and uh, that they do have more than one wife. And uh, I was talking to one pastor who had gone to a, a place in Africa, and the chief there actually had 15 wives. And he was really growing in the Lord, and... and um, he wanted to start a church there in his village, and, and they basically had to say, you, you can't. He said, well, I'll get rid of 14 of the wives, and uh, I'll, have, I'll be the man of one. And, and of course, in, the, in that culture, those women uh, basically would have been left to starve to death. And uh, they said, no, no, just keep your 15 wives, but you can't be a pastor. And uh, sort of, you know, the lesser of the evils. And... Uh, but again, the picture of God was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve's. And uh, so that is the image of God in the man, in the woman, and that image is to be pronounced in the church. This also doesn't mean you have to have a wife. Uh, again, you can be a single person and pastor, but if you do, are married, you need to be the husband of one wife. And um, having of faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination or literally they're incorrigible. Now in Timothy he goes into a little more detail and the whole concept is if you can't pastor the little church, your house, how can you pastor a big church? Because the same principles in discipling your children are the same principles in discipling people within the church. And again, we can all have great character at church, but it's harder to have great character at home where everybody really sees what's going on. And so basically your character and your godliness of life has to be developed to the point that even at home, where people see you at a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week site, that you still are that man of God that you appear to be at church. And uh, typically when kids get around the junior high years, their little hypocrite sensors come on, you know. Hey, you're telling us to do that, but you're doing this. What's going on with that, you know? And uh, what will happen is if you have, uh, you know, don't do as I say, but do, you know, don't, don't do as I do, do as I say type of thing, you're going to create in them rebellion. And uh, they're going to basically say you're a hypocrite and what you're teaching's uh, hypocrite, and, and, and they're going to cause uh, dissension in the home, and a house divided can't stand. And so it has to be a real thing. What God has done in your life is a real thing. And the kids see that, and the family see that. No, nobody's perfect, and if a pastor gets up and tries to present himself as perfect, then he's setting himself up for a fall. And uh, if he's trying to appear to the church that he's perfect and he goes home and he's not perfect and that again is going to seem to the kids as if he's not telling the complete truth. Um, you need to be who you are everywhere you are. 
the same person. And uh, that you are indeed leading your family in a godly way. And if that's not happening, then you probably should wait until God develops you to cause your home to be that godly place. And once God has taught you those principles of living a godly life and being, uh, being able to disciple your own family, then now you can take that step in being an elder uh, in the church. Now again, this doesn't mean In the book of Timothy, he says, before you lay hands on somebody, before you put them into that place, make sure these things are in order. That doesn't mean after you lay hands on somebody that they're not going to have difficulties that arise. They are. I mean, I I don't think that anybody who's an elder is going to always have a record of being blameless in every instance, in every day, for the next 50 years. We all say some really stupid things sometimes. And we catch ourselves afterwards going, oh man, was I in the flesh or what? You know, I mean, what in the world? We have those moments that we fall. We blow it. And that's not going to say, you're not blameless, no longer in leadership, you're out. Or, hey, you know, you told your kid to get in the car, and he said, no, you're no longer a leader. He's in, you know. <laughs> and we even see with God, <laughs> he had some pretty disobedient kids, if you read the Old Testament. And we see the prodigal son. He was, that father was an awesome guy. Actually, uh, in the analogy, it was God. And, and his prodigal son came home. And so, uh, you know, pray for the leaders in the church. Because Satan is attacking them, and of course they're going to attack the weakest link. Uh, Whatever that weakest link may be, and if it's their marriage or their kids, uh, they're going to zero in and and try to bring disruption in that leader's home to hurt their ministry. And uh, these are questions you ask before you lay hands on them and put them into the ministry. But then I believe, as it tells us in Romans 11, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Once hands have been laid upon them, then they are to remain in that position. And uh, it's not going to go backwards. And we see that throughout the scriptures. We see that the Lord laid hands on Saul to be king. And even though when he proved himself unworthy to be king, and God said, I've already anointed somebody else, King David, Yet the Lord did not put David as king until Saul died, until he was no longer in that position. And uh, again, you can go through the scriptures that when people fall, we who are spiritual, it says in Galatians 6, need to restore that person, not to wound them further. Now there are times, and it's not just leaders, but anybody in the church who's struggling, they may need to take factors out of their life to help them zero in once again on their walk with God. And so there may be a point where we say, you know, why don't you not teach Sunday school for a season, whether it's one month or six months or whatever, so you can give all your energy to whatever it might be, your walk with the Lord or spending some more time with your wife and and counseling that and getting some strengthening there, whatever the, the problem might be. And sometimes in leadership we do that. We say, you know, why don't you take six months off 
and, uh, and just set aside and just let the Lord minister to you and build you up and, and then uh, you're right back in that place of ministry. And sometimes guys struggle and they go through a hard time and, and the best healing antidote for them is just to stay right where they're at. Uh, continue to minister uh, even though they themselves are having a very difficult time, sometimes in their marriage, sometimes in their home with their kids, sometimes in struggles in their own life. But it's a, it's a beautiful thing as Christians. We constantly are saying to one another, you know, we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for a sincere heart and obe- obeying the Lord. And as long as they're uh, confessing their sins one to another and praying for one another and trying to follow the Lord, we didn't want to continue to encourage them in their walk with God and, and in their ministry as well. And uh, so here it, it tells us that he needs to be blameless, the husband of one wife. Uh, he needs to be a good steward, literally, in his own home. And then also a bishop, another name for a leader, for an overseer, literally, who's overseeing the flock. And this, again, could be an elder or a deacon. He also needs to be blameless and a steward of God, faithful. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that it, there's one thing that is acquired of a steward, that he be found faithful. And that's it. When the Lord comes, he says, good and what? Faithful servant. And so basically to plug in there and keep plugging away. There's a lot of people that will jump into something and as soon as the honeymoon's over, they're willing to end it whether it's teaching Sunday school or ushering or teaching home Bible study, they're there for a temporary stay until the newness of it is gone. And that's not what life's about. People often get married that way. People often take jobs that way. And when we follow the Lord, it's for the long haul. It's plugging in there, being the turtle every day, walking slowly but surely as a Christian, day in and day out. And the same with the ministry. It's coming and ministering and continuing to minister until the day you drop. And uh, that's why we say, well, how long is a Sunday school commitment? Just life. Just do it for your life. (laughs) People say, no, really. I mean, is it a six-month commitment? Really, it's life. If you're called to be a teacher, do it. And don't stop until the Lord comes back or you drop dead. Whichever comes first. And uh, I, I can't wait to, for the day to see, you know, 70 and 80-year-old Sunday school teachers just with a passion for God. Hey, let me tell you, there's nothing like that. And to see those little kindergartners and those little chairs and, you know, looking up and here's this person who's been following the Lord for 60 years with just love and passion, sharing to them about the Lord, telling those stories. There's a great power Uh, as you're faithful in the Lord. And then it goes on to say, and they're not self-willed or self-centered. Or uh, It says in James 3 that the wisdom from above is willing to yield. And so they're they're not ambitious in their own will, in their own way. They're not trying to build their own kingdom. But they're uh, submitted to the will of God. They're submitted to God's desire for the ministry in their life. And uh, often you, you see pastors with an incredible unhappiness in the ministry because there's so many guys trying to build their own kingdoms within the church rather than being submitted one to another rather than being 
fellow servants. And, uh, you know, when we get together with our leadership here, there is just that complete yieldedness to one another, complete servant's heart. There's none of that trying to make one, one person trying to lift himself up above the others and uh, trying to make himself shine or any of that. It's just we're all servants and we're all, you know, under rowers is, is one of the words for a servant, a doulos, you know, where you're down underneath the boat and you're straining at the oars and everybody's up on top, you know, cruising along, enjoying the breeze, looking at the sights, but down underneath. And that's to be the leaders in the church. They're down sweating so everybody else can be up on top, enjoying the ride. And that's the, the heart we definitely have in this church. And what a blessing it is. And then again, not quick-tempered. Um, again, there's some guys that have... Their life experience is one that they do get upset with people. And, uh, and God needs to tame that temper. And uh, it's not to say that we're not to get angry. Sometimes we are to get angry. The Bible says be angry. And... Uh, when you see wolves come around and you see these leaders getting angry, I'm glad they're angry. They should be angry. But this is not talking about that. That's just talking about in a quick moment. You know, you're angry and, and uh, taking a swing at a guy. And this is exactly what it says, not given to wine and then not violent. Uh, and so you say, well, what's blameless mean? Well, here's some things. Not to be violent, not to be quick-tempered, not to be given to wine. So... Again, when you look at blameless, if it's to have some type of life that's almost non-human, uh, if that's your qualification, then why would he be saying these type of things? And um, again, that if you do have a leader that has, for a season, for several months, been able to keep his anger intact and he wants to teach a Bible study and you see God's hand in his life, and that doesn't mean that he's not going to have struggles with that from time to time. And something will have to continue to work with him. Um, years back, there was one particular person that tried everybody's patience uh, in the church. And um, one night, uh, he came and he was asking for money. This guy was always asking for money because he was not being a good steward of his finances. Um, but anyway, one night he did. And, and this particular home fellowship leader said, man, I smell beer on your breath. And and he goes, I haven't been drinking. He goes, look, you've been out drinking, and now you want me to give you money for food. And, and uh, this guy was sort of a, a, a rabble-rouser at one point. He's actually a Navy SEAL. And, uh, and anyway, this guy just pushed his buttons. He pushed, pushed all our buttons. And finally, um, make a long story short, he swung and hit the guy and knocked him out. The home fellowship leader knocked the guy out. And uh, he came to the home fellowship leaders meeting and he said, you know, I need to step down and he told us the story and at the end of the story we applauded him. <laughs> it's what we all had been wanting to do for quite some time. We just said, don't do it again. <clears throat> but uh, there's a good example of what not to do, but sometimes it does happen. And uh, not to be given to wine. Again, I could do a whole study on this, and actually I have done in several cases in Leviticus 10 and Isaiah 28. I believe that 
leaders aren't to drink alcohol at all. In Leviticus 10, there as Nadab and Abihu were killed, God said very plainly, don't drink alcohol, don't drink alcoholic beverages when you're going to minister in the temple. Now, when are we as priests to minister in the temple? We are the temple, so all the time. Our ministry doesn't end. Jesus says, my father works until now and I also work. We find in Proverbs, there in chapter 30, he says, it's not for kings or princes to drink wine or any intoxicating drink. That's Bud and Budweiser and Coors and all of them, any intoxicating drink. Because he's a king. What does the Bible call us in 1 Peter 2? He says you are kings and priests. In Revelation 1.6, he says God has made us kings and priests unto God. I do not believe that Jesus ever drank. Why? Because it tells us that he was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. And it says that priesthood was continuous. In other words, it had no beginning and it had no ending. That when Jesus was on planet earth, he was continuing on the order of the priesthood according to Melchizedek and it had never ended. And then also, they asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he said to them, it is as you say. And they put above him the king of the Jews. Jesus was a king and a priest. Therefore, if he and his wisdom said kings are to never drink, I don't believe he ever drank. If he said that why the priests are to ministering, they're never to have any alcohol because it would change their opinion of justice and equity and it would change their view of the word, then Jesus ministered all the time. Did he drink wine? Yes, I think he drank non-alcoholic drink. In those days, the way they distilled uh, the, the wine, um, basically it was, it was a, a grape juice is what it was until it was fermented. You can go to Williamsburg, and there uh, in Williamsburg, uh, the babies drank the beer. They put it in bottles, and the babies drank it. Why? Because before it was fermented, it was basically just a distilled water with a little bit of a beer taste with it. And if you look in the Psalms, it says, and we have as much joy as when the new wine increased. What's new wine? Grape juice. <laughs> Old wine is fermented. And uh, I, there's a lot more in the scriptures on this as well. When Timothy was sick, he said, hey, at least take a little bit of wine for your stomach. He wasn't even going to drink wine even when he was sick. And who is Timothy? I'm sending Timothy to you because he follows exactly my ways in everything, in life, in word. He goes down and gives the whole list in First and Second Timothy. And so he wasn't even going to drink when he had stomach problems. And Paul said, at least take some wine as a medicine. And even there, he had to command it. Timothy didn't want to. And uh, so, again, um, do we have a law? No, we don't. We have no law as Christians. But we do have the will of God and the desire of God. And if he says it's not for priests when they minister, we're to minister all the time. It's not for kings. Who are we? We're the king's kids. Then it's not for us also to drink. And I, I believe that's a, a clear teaching uh, personally. But he does give uh, indication in um, Timothy that elders 
to not be given to wine. In other words, don't drink wine at all. But then he says the deacons, he says not be given too much to wine. So, you know, drink a little bit, but not too much to the deacons. But to those who are teaching the word, absolutely none, because it would change possibly the view of God's word. And, and like Nadab and Abihu, it'd be anathema before the Lord if we um, didn't give a clear teaching of the word because of uh, any kind of chemical stimulus. And uh, so here he says, um, again, not violent and not greedy for money or ill-gotten gain. In other words, he'd be willing to take money that's not gotten by labor and, and by what he's supposed to have. And boy, I'll add right in there the lottery. Um, you know, most of, the pe- most of the money that comes in the lottery are from people who make $11,000 and under. Um, it's, it's, it's a plague on the poor. I had a guy who uh, owned a grocery store in town. He used to own a grocery store in another state when the lottery came in there. And he said, he goes, you know, I'll sell the lottery in my store. Um, it's one of the requirements to be a part of this chain. But let me tell you something. He said, you can look at it. Uh, the, the month the lottery comes in, the amount of bread and milk will go down and the amount of lottery tickets will be exactly the same amount. The same amount of money will come into my grocery store, no less. It'll be the same exact amount of money, but it, the amount of bread and milk will be less. So people are saying, hey, well, we may not have milk for my kids, but once I'm a millionaire, you know. Um, they had a thing over at the bowling alley this last week saying we're going to raise money for the fire victims. And so if you want to bet $2, and then if you get a strike on frames 3, 6, and 9, uh, you'll get $10. And uh, this gal said, well, you know, I'll do it for the fire victims. And I said, oh, well, just give them $2. She goes, well, you know, it's something fun to do. I said, well, is it really for the fire victims? She goes, yes. I said, so if you do within $10, then you're going to give it to all the $10 to them. She goes, cut, cut it out, Brian. And, uh, and then I, I said, you know what? The way you've been bowling lately, you should have bet them that you would have gotten hit by lightning before the end of the three games or bit by a shark. You'd have had better odds. Or... I told her one more thing. I said, or put your money on me. <laughs> My third game, I got a strike on three, six, and nine. I really did. But it, I hadn't bet, so it, wouldn't, it didn't matter. I wasn't going to do that. Because that would be wrong for a leader to do. See, right there. It's not, it's not the money God would have come to me. But hospitable <laughs> to be... There's some people that are, that are stuck up. They don't want people in their house. They don't want people around. And that's not the, the heart of a leader. They have a heart to open up to say, come and stay with me. Especially in these times, they didn't have hotels and stuff like we have today. And so to open your house, come on in. And uh, the people I think that are the most hospitable are the people who are just themselves. Often people say, well, if I'm going to have somebody over for dinner, I've got to clean the house and dust and make it look perfect. And people walk in going, oh boy, you know, I hope I don't spill anything. I hope I don't get anything on the carpet. And, and you're there with perfect manners and, you know, and you leave that, and, you know, you didn't have a real comfortable, but you walk in there and, you know, the house is 
like the way they normally live. They, they don't mind if you come into their house the way they live in it every day. And, you know, you, you sort of take the towel off the couch and set it on the floor and sit down and, and uh, you know, kick the dog off the stool and put your feet up. And you go, hey, I'm comfortable here. This feels like home. And you can have a great time of fellowship. But people often don't want people coming to their house because they always feel they have to have everything just right or people are going to think bad of them. And thus, they don't enjoy hospitality. But hospitality is when a person can just be themselves and let their house be their house and come on in, this is how we live. And, uh, and they thus feel comfortable as well. And then also lovers of what is good or lover of good people or good things. They're not people who are in love with the things of the world and worldliness. And they're sober-minded. They think very clearly about godliness and godly things. They are just. In other words, they're fair. Uh, sometimes people can go to the other side. They're, they're not just enough where they need to put their foot down and say, no, this is not right and we're not going to continue to allow it. Leaders need to know when to put their foot down. And then also holy, to be sanctified, set apart for the Lord's use and then have self-control to be able to say no, to be able to say yes, to be able to have a disciplined life to some degree and then to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict, to rebuke, to get in their face sometimes, but using the word of God with those who contradict. And so there are people who, in a word, they're holding fast on to the word of God. They meditate in it day and night. They're living in the word. They're, like Joshua, not letting the word of God depart from their mouth. And then they're able to use now, they're skilled in the word of God to... Uh, exhort people or to rebuke people to help them see this is wrong this is why this is what the word of god says and here's what you need to be doing and we'll pick up there in verse 9 next week as well lord we thank you for your word tonight and we do ask in jesus name that uh, you would help us lord as faithful ministers to be a minister unto you and unto your people as would glorify you. And we do ask, Lord, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in the midst of us tonight as we seek your face. And, Lord, we know that you've stopped us here as we were had all green lights and we're heading into the new building, that you stopped us, Lord. And, and you shut doors, you opened doors, and, and you knew this fire was coming. You knew the timing that this door would be shut for us. You could have had the SDG&E hook this whole thing up before the fire ever started. Because you're speaking to us, Lord, and we thank you for that. And we rejoice in that. That you're not just letting us go where we want, but you, as a faithful shepherd, are leading us in the green pastures and in the timing that you desire. And so, Lord, we ask that we would hear from you tonight as we minister unto you that we would be able to hear what your spirit is saying to us as well. Be glorified in our lives, Lord. And I pray that the leaders in our church would just continue to be strengthened as they grow in the knowledge of your word, as they continue to grow in holiness, in justice, in purity, and self-control, as they grow in their 
growth is evident to all, that we would just continue to lift them up in prayer and be led by the Spirit, that we would be strong before you. And thank you for the unity you've brought amongst our leadership. Thank you for the unity you've brought in our church, that we really do love one another, submitted to one another, care for one another. We thank you. And we do ask your kingdom to come and your will to be done amongst us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Let's all stand together.